Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 118. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on June 7th, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Before we get to the history part, I want to mention a couple of items. First, thank you to everybody who came to the first ever Central Texas meetup of fans of the podcast a few days back. I loved meeting people I didn't know or had only dealt with over email, and I appreciated friends and family, most of whom, it must be said, are only occasional and inattentive listeners, showing up in support. Of course, they will only know about my appreciation if they get to this episode, and in that regard, I'm not holding my breath. Second, I'm dedicating this episode to my mother-in-law, Maddie Shine, who passed away last week. In addition to being a mother, grandmother, mother-in-law, step-grandmother, teacher, and Oklahoman, she was quite the student of history and did indeed listen to this podcast until she was unable. Maddie taught history and civics back in the day, and especially Texas history, which Texans know is very important. She knew all about Cabeza de Vaca before I did, and before most of the non-Texans who have heard our episodes on the topic. I also suspect, but did not have the opportunity to confirm, that Maddie would have been a fan of Anne Hutchinson, or at least some of the portrayals of her. Regardless, her children, grandchildren, step-grandchildren, and many friends miss her already. In crunchy college towns where people festoon their cars with bumper stickers, one occasionally sees one that says, well-behaved women seldom make history. It's a quotation of the celebrated historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, professor of history at Harvard, past president of the American Historical Association, and winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the Bancroft Prize for her book, The Midwives' Tale. Truth be told, the people who display the bumper sticker probably mean to express something different from Professor Ulrich. She meant to say that we too rarely study the lives of ordinary women, not go out there and raise hell. But in a sense, either use of the phrase might apply to Anne Hutchinson. Anne Hutchinson was the first famous European-American woman. And after Metoica, Pocahontas, only the second still-famous woman in the lands now encompassed by the United States. She appears in most histories of the United States and its first colonies, including George Bancroft's groundbreaking History of the United States of America, published between the 1830s and the 1870s. Curiously, she does not appear in Jill Lepore's recent survey, These Truths, an omission that I think might be telling, it was surprising to me, and to which I will return. Mrs. Hutchinson is famous because she disrupted the community of the Puritan Church in Boston in the mid-1630s by attracting most of its congregation to an extreme interpretation of Calvinist theology, for which she was tried, convicted, excommunicated, and expelled, just as Roger Williams had been. We'll get into Hutchinson's theology, and so you might benefit from listening or re-listening to our episode, Introduction to Puritan Theology, unless you really hate theology, which is episode 106, as Apple reckons it. And for that matter, 
all of the episodes on Roger Williams might be useful. An enormous amount of ink has been spilled over Anne Hutchinson over hundreds of years. A scroll through only the references in her Wikipedia entry will give you a sense of the volume of writing about her and even the variation in it. Older interpretations regard Hutchinson as an extremist and deeply disruptive to the Puritan project in Massachusetts. In more recent years, by which I mean since roughly 1920, there's been a lot of sympathetic writing about Hutchinson as the study of women in early America has become more popular and the Puritans of early Massachusetts decidedly less so. In some circles, she's seen as a victim of oppression, and the study of oppression and its victims has also become more popular. These two themes merge in Hutchinson's case insofar as there was, at a minimum, quite a lot of tone policing, dare I say mansplaining, from Hutchinson's critics and prosecutors. There are those who hold her up as an early defender of religious freedom. See Eve LaPlante's conclusion in her 2004 book, American Jezebel, The Uncommon Life of Anne Hutchinson and the Woman Who Defied the Puritans. Her monument at the Massachusetts State House upholds Hutchinson as a courageous exponent of civil liberty and religious toleration. My own take after reading more on Hutchinson than I originally planned is that her story is interesting in part because it's something of a Rorschach test. All of these interpretations are defendable to some degree, and the emphasis one or another historian puts on a given interpretation in lieu of others says as much about the author as it does about Mrs. Hutchinson. This makes the complex story of Anne Hutchinson very much a story about ourselves. If you stick around until the end of our series on Hutchinson, which I expect to be two episodes, but always subject to my muse, I'll offer some opinions of my own. In those, there will be, I promise, something to irritate everybody. The facts of Anne Hutchinson and the controversy that tore apart the Massachusetts Bay Colony from 1636 to 1638 are well known and usually described in at most a few paragraphs in general histories of the United States. Anne Hutchinson was born Anne Marbury to parents Francis Marbury and Bridget Dryden in Alford, Lincolnshire, England, and baptized there in July 1591. She would be the third of 15 children, 12 of whom would survive. Francis Marbury was a Puritan minister who'd been critical of the poor learning of Anglican clergy. He was sufficiently obstreperous in his criticisms of church authorities that he was tried and tossed in jail some 13 years before Anne was born. During his imprisonment, he wrote a transcript of his trial from memory and years later would use it to educate his children in Puritan theology and, in his well-earned view, the buffoonery of the Anglican hierarchy. As Puritans grew in stature, Francis Marbury would return to respectability, but these childhood lessons were not lost on Anne. She was raised to question authority, especially clerical authority, an unusual thing for a girl growing up in late Elizabethan England. The family lived in Alford until Anne was 15, where Marbury was assistant priest at St. Wilfred's Church, and the schoolmaster at Alfred Free Grammar School, one of many such free schools established by Elizabeth. Then in 1604, the family moved to London, where Marbury preached at various parishes in the region, 
his Puritanism now tolerated and his own attitude toward the clergy either modified or suppressed in the service of his career. Anne's father would die in 1611 when she was only 19. The next year, Anne Marbury would marry William Hutchinson, an acquaintance from Alford about five years older than her, then working in London as a fabric merchant. The couple would move back to Alford and be married there in August 1612. Soon the Hutchinsons heard of a young preacher in Boston, Lincolnshire, about 21 miles from Alford. His name, familiar to long-standing and attentive listeners, was John Cotton, and at the age of 27 was already considered one of the leading Puritan ministers. In his preaching, Cotton emphasized the covenant of grace over the covenant of works, a subtle distinction that would tear apart Boston, Massachusetts 20 years later. Cotton eventually became so important a figure in Puritan theology that Boston Lincolnshire became a hotbed of Puritanism, and a number of the most important figures in the early Puritan Great Migration in Massachusetts came from there. It's even been suggested that Boston, Massachusetts got its name in particular recognition of Cotton's influence. The Hutchinsons were among those so influenced. For the better part of 20 years, they would travel the 21 miles from Alford to Boston just to hear Cotton preach, until his own departure for Massachusetts in 1633, one step ahead of Archbishop William Laud's inquisitors. Anne's brother-in-law, John Wheelwright, was also a Puritan minister and follower of Cotton. He preached in the town of Billsby, only a couple of miles down the road from Alford to Boston. The Hutchinsons would go to his services when it would be too difficult to go all the way to Boston, which it must have been from time to time because Anne and William produced children at an astonishing pace. Between their marriage and Cotton's departure 21 years later, Anne would be pregnant 14 times and raise nine surviving children. Some of those children would die violently in the Bronx of all places many years later, but her surviving progeny would be so important that her own history would be wildly different without her contributions as a mother. Among her descendants are Thomas Hutchinson, who would become the loyalist governor of Massachusetts in the mid-1700s and write the first history of Massachusetts, and three American presidents, Franklin Roosevelt and both George Bushes. Something for everyone there. When John Cotton left Boston, Lincolnshire for Boston, Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1633, the Hutchinsons resolved to follow him across the ocean. They could not go immediately, however, because Anne, now 43, was pregnant again. The family sailed for New England in 1634, arriving in August. There, the prosperous William Hutchinson built a large house in what is today downtown Boston, and acquired hundreds of acres of land outside of town at Mount Wollaston for farming. Anne, who knew a lot about giving birth, became a midwife and thereby became friends with many of the women in town. The Hutchinson family naturally joined the first church in Boston, where John Cotton had been hired as teacher, essentially the deputy minister. Cotton had taken the job so famously declined by Roger Williams and, as long-standing and attentive listeners already know, would from that position go on to become the most influential clerical opponent of Williams. 
In writing this, I had to go back and remind myself of the state of affairs in the Massachusetts Bay in the summer of 1634. And so it occurs to me that it would be useful to set the stage a bit for our listeners who might not themselves remember every word of the last 15 or so episodes. The Massachusetts Bay Colony had been established as a refuge for Puritans fleeing oppression in Old Blighty. Its founders intended that it serve as an example of a godly nation. One of its tenets was that if its citizens broke their covenant with God to follow his law as laid out in scripture, God would punish them, just as he had punished the people of Israel when, according to the Bible, they broke faith with him. It was therefore critically important that the citizens of the bay have, at some fundamental level, the same conception of God's law. They needed to conform, and people who were unwilling or unable to conform had to leave. In this respect, the requirement for conformity was universal in the Christian world. The Puritans were being persecuted in England because they didn't conform there. The great difference in Massachusetts, however, was that the clergy and lay citizens were immensely sophisticated students of Scripture, and in the course of their study— would periodically develop theological disagreements that percolated into the general population. Now, John Winthrop, who was effectively the founding father of the colony, was a lawyer, not a theologian. He and many of the original clergy understood that the requirement for conformity had to be managed realistically, not dogmatically. There were practical reasons for this. First, they had a colony to run— People needed to spend their time working, building a community together, all that stuff. If every little disagreement resulted in serious punishment or banishment, the community would split apart, and the city on the hill would be ridiculed rather than admired. Second, if the colony were divided by rigid intolerance of doctrinal differences, where'd we get back to England? Dysfunction in Massachusetts would be exploited by the people there already working to revoke the colony's charter, which was essential to the success of the venture. This wasn't a theoretical risk. When the Hutchinsons arrived, the Bay had already begun training militia units and building its defenses against a possible military assault from England. Winthrop had therefore worked through doctrinal differences through an ad hoc process of reconciliation— the clergy would meet to narrow the scope of differences as they emerged and then draft diplomatically worded conclusions that obscured such differences that remained. Conformity, even if sometimes superficial, would be preserved in the interests of the colony as a whole. By the end of 1634, however, things were beginning to change. As the persecution of Puritans in England ramped up, more and more Puritans arrived in Massachusetts. Many of them had been polarized in the intensifying oppression in the mother country and were therefore disappointed in or even intolerant of doctrinal differences that they saw when they got to the bay. The spirit of compromise and the interest of preserving the unity of the colony was declining. Just about the time that John Cotton got to Boston in late 1633, Roger Williams had returned to Salem from Plymouth, working informally as the second minister in the church there under Samuel Skelton. He had kept his head down and avoided controversy. But then in early August 1634, just before the Hutchinsons arrived, Skelton died. Williams would soon poke his head up 
and resume preaching his heterodox separatist theology over which he would not compromise. John Cotton would lead the charge against him. The Hutchinsons, no doubt, followed the Williams controversy in very close proximity. Now, as most of you know, Williams argued for interpretations of scripture that were incompatible with the political requirements of the colony, even if they'd been accepted as theologically sound. His separatism was so intense that even Bradford's pilgrims, themselves separatists, could not agree with it. Separatism, according to Williams, was, in fact, individual and inherently incompatible with a congregational church, which was the whole basis for citizenship in the Bay. As importantly, the Bay Purins were not, as a matter of law and theology, separatists. They remained formally part of the Church of England, which was essential if they were to retain their royal charter. Williams had to go and was driven out in early 1636. While William Hutchinson was building his businesses in Boston and Anne was raising their many children and midwifing the labor of women in the colony, John Cotton was preaching a sterner version of the covenant of grace in the Boston church than had generally prevailed among the colony's clergy. Here's a quick refresher on the idea, which I've used before, from Edmund Morgan's book on Roger Williams. Quote, God had made a covenant of works with Adam, offering Adam salvation in return for perfect obedience. But Adam broke the covenant and left his posterity unable to obey and deprived of eternal life. God then made another covenant, the covenant of grace, with Abraham and his seed, promising salvation in return for faith. The covenant of grace, by which alone a man could be saved, was not really within the grasp of human effort. The faith which it demanded was the product of that process of conversion, in which a man could act only by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Back to me, quoting me from a dozen or so episodes ago. Several important consequences flow from this. The first idea was that Adam's failure had ended the possibility of salvation through good works. In the Puritan view, one could not get to heaven merely by following God's law. God would either bestow grace or he would not. And in principle, there was nothing that any one person could do about it. The idea that good works could plow the road at the pearly gates was, in Puritan theology, one of the great shortcomings of Catholicism, and the implications were severe. If the clergy said such things to their flock, they were deceiving them, offering the promise of salvation on a fraud. To the extent that clergy promoted a covenant of works, they were misrepresenting God's promise and condemning the millions who believed them to hell back to me right now. Of course, no Puritan minister would admit to promoting a covenant of works. At the same time, it took a certain iron character to accept the deepest implication of the covenant of grace, that there was nothing that one could do to improve the odds of divine salvation. The omniscient and all-powerful God had decided who would be saved and who would not be, and that was that. In a world where salvation was of ultimate and transcendent importance, the sheer hopelessness of the Puritan theology might have led to despair and nihilism. It didn't because Puritan preachers offered a glimmer of hope 
At some point, the Holy Spirit would enter into the soul of a man or woman who would be saved, bringing grace. Further transformations would follow, including sanctification, which was a striving for righteous actions in daily life. The critical point for Puritans was that such a striving did not raise the odds of salvation, known as justification, but it reflected an increased probability that one was in fact saved. Now, quoting me from a few episodes back, all of this naturally meant that it was important to Puritans to see evidence of their own salvation and to see it in others. This idea would percolate in any number of ways, most famously for we moderns in the Puritan work ethic. Success in this world was evidence, even if not proof, of God's favor. So Puritans sought that success by working very hard at whatever it was they did. Their theology, tough as it was, led to extremely constructive behavior. Of course, working hard to develop evidence of one's sainthood or regeneration was very close, almost a split hair's breadth, from believing the work itself raised the odds of salvation. The belief in the covenant of grace thereby encroached dangerously on the belief in a covenant of works. It would become easy to accuse a diligent, hardworking Puritan of indulging in a covenant of works, which is a very serious charge. Okay, back to me now in the present. Further, some Puritan clergy taught that sanctification and ultimate salvation or justification required preparation, which was that bit about striving for righteous actions in daily life. Again, doing this would not raise the odds of salvation, which no fundamentally flawed human could ever do. But it increased the pile of evidence that one was on the list, so to speak. All of this background perhaps helps us understand that Cotton was saying, essentially, that preachers in the Bay had been talking too much about what one might do in preparation for salvation, and not enough about the impossibility of influencing one's prospects for salvation. As all of this was happening, newcomers emphasizing hard-edged theological purity over unity, Roger Williams being banished for his extreme, if even us, modern ideas, and Cotton implying that the other ministers in the colony were too concerned with good works, Anne began hosting women at her home to discuss and elucidate Cotton's sermons. She being eloquent and witty and very learned, these gatherings grew quite large and eventually included some of the important men of Boston. Now let's go to Edmund Morgan from his book, The Puritan Dilemma, quote, In these weekly meetings, she carried the principles of divine omnipotence and human helplessness in a dangerous direction toward the heresy known to theologians as antinomianism. Since man was utterly helpless, she reasoned, when God acted to save him, he placed the Holy Ghost directly within him, so that the man's life was thereafter directed by the Holy Ghost, and the man himself, in a sense, ceased to be. At the same time, she concluded that human actions were no clue to the question of whether or not this transformation had taken place. 
The fact that a man behaved in a sanctified manner, breaking none of God's laws, was no evidence that he was saved. In Puritan terminology, this meant that sanctification was no evidence of justification, that men's lives in this world offered no evidence of their prospect in the next. The Orthodox Puritans never claimed that the correspondence was perfect. Hypocrisy, together with a thousand imperfections of human vision, could deceive the most skillful examiner. But it was usually possible to recognize sanctification, and that sanctification resulted from justification was not to be doubted at all. Well, Hutchinson doubted and denied it. She was, it seemed, an antinomian. Back to me. Antinomianism, the general idea that grace or salvation is divorced from conduct or compliance with religious law, was heretical because it was perceived as nihilistic, as sometimes it could be. Hutchinson's immense personal popularity, at least with the lay members of the Boston church, and especially the women, spread her arguably antinomian ideas quickly. By the summer of 1636, even the new governor of the colony, Sir Henry Vane, was coming to Hutchinson's discussion group, which now packed her house. Vane had come to Massachusetts recently, along with thousands of newcomers, including Anne Hutchinson's brother-in-law, the preacher John Wheelwright, in 1635 and 1636. Although only 22, he was of the nobility. Out of deference to his status and in the hope that Vane's arrival would lead others of high rank to come to Massachusetts, the Freeman elected Vane governor in the spring of 1636. And now the temporarily out-of-power John Winthrop was watching him soak up Hutchinson's heresy, if that be what it was. Now let's go back to Morgan for the deeper implications of Hutchinson's ideas. Quote, Hutchinson's first principle, that the person of the Holy Ghost dwells in a justified person, was dangerously close to a belief in immediate personal revelation. It threatened the fundamental conviction on which the Puritans built their state, their churches, and their daily lives, namely, that God's will could be discovered only through the Bible. In combination with a belief that sanctification offered no evidence of justification, it undermined the whole basis for moral endeavor, which Puritan theologians had constructed since the time of Calvin. What reason for a man to exert himself for the right if he may stand still and wait for Christ to do all for him. These views were not necessarily separatist. Rather, they were a 17th century version of nihilism. But to make matters worse, Hutchinson and her friends developed a new and especially invidious form of separatism, too. Though she denied that sanctification could be evidence of justification, she did maintain that any justified person could discern presumably at the direction of the Holy Ghost within him, whether or not another person was justified. On the basis of this almighty insight, Hutchinson and her followers confidently pronounced any person they encountered as under a covenant of grace, really saved, or under a covenant of works, deluded and damned because relying on good works instead of divine grace. So that it began to be as common here, Winthrop says, to distinguish between men by being under a covenant of grace or a covenant of works as in other countries between Protestants and Papists. 
The wholesome distractiveness that might result from Hutchinson's self-assurance became apparent when she hinted to her admirers that all the ministers in Massachusetts, with the exception of her two old favorites, John Cotton and John Wheelwright, were under a covenant of works and therefore unfit to preach the gospel. Back to me. Whatever one might think of Hutchinson's views and those of her opponents in the abstract, it's not hard to see how they posed at least the risk to the Bay Colony as the extreme separatism of Roger Williams had. The hardening positions of the two sides made conflict inevitable. Among the recent and more dogmatic arrivals was a young clergyman named Thomas Shepard, who had organized a new church in Cambridge, then known as Newtown, early in 1636. Shepard was disturbed by Cotton's teaching and that of John Wheelwright. At some point in 1636, he sent written interrogatories to Cotton, asking that Cotton, quote, give us satisfaction by way of writing rather than speech. Shepard, it turned out, was one of those newcomers more interested in rooting out doctrinal error than maintaining the unity of the colony. In fairness, while Shepard had challenged in writing differences that earlier colonists had politely swept under the rug, it's also likely that the rising intolerance in the Boston church and in Hutchinson's after-church discussion group for the preaching of preparation or anything else that suggested human behavior was relevant to justification provoked a more pointed reaction than would have been the case had Shepard only been responding to Cotton's sermons. Cotton let a few weeks go by and then thanked Shepard for this labor of love, meaning Shepard's interrogatories, assured him that he needed no instruction on the dangers of heresy, and reported that he did not believe he had misled any believers, either in England or in Massachusetts. This did not satisfy Shepard, who began to rally other clergy to his side and preach against the intense and arguably arrogant spiritualism now so popular in Boston. In October 1636, the magistrates and clergy met in Boston for the regular meeting of the general court. Shepard and other clerical leaders met with Cotton and Wheelwright in Cotton's home to discuss doctrinal differences. Hugh Peter was also there. Peter was particularly sensitive to the dangers of radical theology because he'd taken over the Salem church after the banishment of Roger Williams and had to repair the perceived damage among the congregation there. Accounts of the meeting vary. According to Winthrop, Cotton and Wheelwright gave satisfaction to their fellow ministers, quote, So they all did hold that sanctification did help to evidence justification. All good, seemingly back to promoting colonial unity by blurring the edges of an otherwise divisive point of theology. Other accounts written subsequently, remember the session is more confrontational. In early December, the same group decided to call Anne Hutchinson, a lay elder of the Boston church named Thomas Leverett, and the church deacon, John Coggeshall, to answer questions. Now to Francis Bremer's account from his biography of John Winthrop, quote, Peter claimed in a later account that Hutchinson asserted that there was a wide and broad difference between our brother Cotton and ourselves, in that, according to her, he preaches the covenant of grace and you the covenant of works, and that you are 
not able ministers of the New Testament and know no more than the apostles did before the resurrection of Christ. Ouch. Shepard and Elliot had similar recollections, though Leverett and Coggeshall thought that all of these clergymen exaggerated Hutchinson's distinction between them and Cotton, Leverett recalling that she merely said that the other ministers did not preach a covenant of grace as clearly as Mr. Cotton did. While Cotton and the ministers may have found a common ground, the questioning of Anne Hutchinson made it clear that the division was not going to fade away easily. And because Hutchinson was claiming that her ideas went no further than the teachings of Cotton and Wheelwright, Shepard and perhaps other clergymen remained suspicious of Cotton's orthodoxy, regardless of what he claimed at their meeting. Back to me. Hugh Peters certainly took Hutchinson, whom he referred to as a woman not only difficult in her opinions, but also of an intemperate spirit, to have insulted the clergy of the Bay as not able ministers of the gospel. Whatever Hutchinson had said, unfortunately she left no diaries or letters of her own, so all we have are the narratives of others, most of whom opposed her theologically. She had not approached the meeting in the old tradition of reconciliation, and was certainly not a well-behaved woman in this first known encounter with the Massachusetts authorities. Whether or not she had actually denounced every minister in New England who was not Cotton or Wheelwright, they came away with the impression that she had. How much of this reflected genuine, if hardening, doctrinal differences, and how much of it reflected sexist irritation with female impudence is one of those Rorschach tests I talked about. Feminist scholars, including Eve LaPlante, take it as the latter. I'm not so sure. This much seems clear. Roger Williams, known to have a winning personality and held in high esteem by Winthrop and others, even if not Cotton, had been banished only the year before for doing the exact same thing. We report, you decide. In the last two months of 1636, Winthrop still hoped to smooth over the differences as he had so many times before. He worked with Cotton and Sir Henry Vane, still then the governor of the colony and one of Hutchinson's supporters, to close the gap and broker some sort of reconciliation. But positions had hardened. When John Wilson, the conventional pastor in charge of the Boston church, preached, Hutchinson's followers, who were then a substantial majority of the congregation, would stand up, turn their backs to him, and walk out. By the beginning of 1637, with the Pequot War looming, Boston had become dangerously divided, and the Puritan project in Massachusetts was at risk of breaking apart. You've already heard how the Bay dealt with its perceived greatest external threat in that momentous year. In the next episode, we will look at how it resolved its greatest internal threat. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics, but frankly other things that I find irritating or amusing. Until next time.